0: I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. COVID-19 myths have spread just about as quickly as the disease itself. But one myth in particular just won't go away. That SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, isn't naturally occurring and was actually man-made. But scientists believe that they can confidently say that the virus wasn't created by humans. And the myth going around is nothing more than that. A A myth. myth. And for today, conspiracy theories about the origin of the virus.
1: This morning, Dr. Anthony Fauci is shooting down theories that the coronavirus was man-made.
0: I started off trying to answer this question. How did the very plausible theory, the theory that the coronavirus that ravaged the world and continues to ravage the world, that it may have come from the coronavirus research lab that just so happened to be right there in the city of Wuhan where the pandemic began?
2: It is from here that former U.S. President Donald Trump and his Secretary of State Mike Pompeo have alleged without any evidence the virus originated.
0: How did that get mislabeled as an out-of-bounds, far-right, debunked conspiracy theory?
3: There's a novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China, what do we do? Oh, you know who we could ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory
0: coronavirus lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. And now that it's come out that it's far from that, why did the most powerful media organizations and big tech companies work so hard to punish and ban and smear anyone who said otherwise?
3: Oh, my God. There's been an outbreak of chocolatey goodness near Hershey, Pennsylvania. What do you think happened? Like, oh, I don't know. Maybe a steam shovel made it with a cocoa bean. Or it's the chocolate factory. Maybe that's it. That could be.
0: But in the process of trying to answer that question, I kept running into the bigger story that that question is just one part of. And that bigger story is the story of the rising power of the Chinese Communist Party and the ways that the CCP, its lies, its corruption, its influence, are increasingly infecting and affecting our society and the unique threat that it poses to the world. Among the most qualified people in the country to tell that story is my guest today, Josh Rogan. Josh has been reporting on this story for years, and he's currently the foreign policy columnist at The Washington Post. It just so happened that last year when COVID hit, he was months into working on a book about U.S.-China relations. So that meant he was speaking almost daily to his sources, high-up sources inside of the government and inside of federal agencies that were just about to be tested in ways that they never could have imagined. So he had a uniquely up-close and personal view into what was happening behind closed doors in real time throughout this pandemic. Unlike so many other columnists and journalists, Josh is not concerned with scoring points for Team Red or Team Blue. He's an old-school journalist who follows the story, who follows his reporting. And I think that's a big part of the reason that on the China Beat, he's been eating everyone's lunch. It's no understatement to say that we have Josh's reporting to thank for shifting the public conversation away from the lie that the lab leak theory was just some right-wing garbage and was something plausible that we should entertain. And in the course of his reporting, Josh was even able to uncover an actual conspiracy, a conspiracy of experts and doctors throughout the world who work together to spread lies about the origins of the pandemic. We talk about all of that and about how the media got it wrong and why they still refuse to admit it. But this conversation, it goes deeper than that. In fact, it went so deep that we have decided to split out the conversation into two parts. Here in part one, we dive into all of the ways that the CCP bears a lot more responsibility for the pandemic than previous reporting has reflected, and how they've been using every tool at their disposal, from blackmail to kidnappings, to keep the truth buried. He also shares what it was like inside the White House during the early days of the pandemic. We get into the surprising reality behind the recent Fauci versus Rand Paul theater and what to really make of the polarizing figure that is Dr. Anthony Fauci. I am so grateful to Josh, and by the way, his excellent book is called Chaos Under Heaven, for spending so much time, frankly, blowing my mind about all of this. I know it's foreign policy. I know it's China. I know it feels far away. But I think if you listen to this conversation today and to the second part that we'll release, I think you will feel a different sense of urgency about the Chinese Communist Party and about the effect that it has already on this country. It's not just a far away foreign policy concern. It's already here. Please stay with us.
2: For more with Austin Meyer, including the details of his investigation into patent trolls and why none of us are safe, check out episode 326 of The Jordan Harbinger Show.
0: Josh Rogan, welcome to Honestly.
4: Thanks so much for having me, Barry.
0: I want to just kind of like set the table and tell you the way that I see things right now, given the fact that like we're all living in different versions of reality when it comes to the question of the pandemic. So, so here's sort of how I see things. We are, I was, I was going to say we just experienced, but it's really that we are still living through a disaster that is many, many, many magnitudes worse than Chernobyl, but Chernobyl on a global scale. We have over 4 million people dead from COVID. The world has changed and continues to change in ways that I don't think we have even yet fully grasped. Children have been out of school for a year New York City just announced that it's introducing these vaccine passports and who knows what will come next. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, we, we aren't returning to before a pandemic. We're now living in this kind of new normal. And there's a tremendous amount of blame to go around. But it seems extremely clear to me that the main blame rests at the feet of the Chinese Communist Party because they silenced whistleblowers, because they disappeared scientists, because they erased public information because they lied to the world about how many people were sick and when they were sick, because they disallowed any sort of real investigation, because they covered up, maybe most importantly, the true origins of the virus and so much more. And in doing all of this, they stole precious time and knowledge from the entire world when we could have been containing the virus. And this is to say nothing, of course, of the way that they've corrupted international organizations like the World Health Organization adding to the sort of lack of trust in major public health institutions, which, of course, plays into everything from vaccine hesitancy to social unrest. I realize that that is like a super crude summary. But I'm curious, is that basically accurate as far as you're concerned?
4: Well, you said a lot there. I would have to agree with basically every word of it in on its face. And I think that the list that you just laid out of Uh, really atrocious and, and harmful actions by the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government since the beginning of the pandemic. It could be much, much longer. We could spend the whole podcast on it. And they continue. You know, none of those things are past tense. To this day, the Chinese government still won't allow a real investigation into the origins. To this day, the early data on patients, which is scientifically important, now, but also for preventing the next pandemic, is still being held under lock and key. To this day, China continues to use its power and influence as the first mover to advance its interests and not simply its national interests, but the party's political interests all over the world with vaccine bribery and coercion and on a grand scale in dozens of countries, the continued attacks on on any country or really any entity that dares to contradict the CCP's party line, and so on and so on. And this is not, of course, I'll be quick to say that as we have this sort of broader awakening in society and around the world to the reality of a Chinese Communist Party that's become increasingly aggressive, increasingly repressive, and increasingly interfering in free and open societies really all over the world in malign ways that affect us, we do have a risk of overreacting, and we do have a risk of Mm -hmm. falling into the trap of— portraying China as some sort of behemoth or some sort of unsolvable challenge or some sort of thing that we need to demonize and set our society and our politics and our policy against. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the simple record of what the CCP has done over the course of the last 18 months has forced a lot of countries, even those that didn't want to, Mm -hmm. to reluctantly acknowledge that we've got a problem here. And, you know, for a lot of countries that has sparked a very contentious and very complex national conversation and we see that in europe mostly we see that in our country and we see that to a lesser extent in the developing world and inside of our own society and this is a big uh, focus of the book it sparked uh, these conversations in all of our institutions right in our media in our markets in our tech industries uh in our hollywood studios in our sports in the nba and of course now in our scientific community and that's how It relates to the debate over the Wuhan labs because, you know, this grand bargain that most of the Washington uh, chattering class had bought into, not all, but most over the last 40 years or at least the last 20 years was that engagement and cooperation with the Chinese Communist Party was the best way to encourage it to liberalize economically, which would then cause it to liberalize politically, and then that would solve the problem and avoid the Cold War and the Thucydides trap and all of those other things people warn you about when they tell you not to confront the CCP. And what the pandemic has made clear and obvious and really, I think, indisputable is that 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 has been lost. Totally. That bargain was not fulfilled on the Chinese Communist Party side. They just decided to go another way. And that doesn't necessarily mean it was wrong to play that card, to encourage them to to do the right thing and move forward and join the international community, basically on the belief that things like rule of law and human rights and individual liberty and some progress towards popular sovereignty were in the human interest. We're part of the human character. And The CCP doesn't believe that. Okay. They don't think that way. And now they're taking the great great leap backwards and we just have to acknowledge that and deal with that. And the first way we could deal with that is by understanding how that relates to the pandemic that we're in.
0: Well, I think one of the reasons, right, that, the Washington chattering class and lots of other people believed that by liberalizing China economically, it would open it up politically was because of the example of the Cold War. And that was the playbook that they were working from. And, you know, I mentioned before Chernobyl, right? Chernobyl, when you say that word, you know, it immediately registers as a kind of lesson about Soviet pathology and the extent to which you know truth is something that is sort of impossible in a fear-based society, in a communist society. But I'm sort of interested in what you were just saying about how this has, COVID has led to a similar reckoning. I don't see COVID having the same resonance with respect to China and the CCP yet. Meaning when you say Chernobyl, everyone's like, yes, Soviet, bad, I get it. I'm not sure that COVID has that same resonance in the popular imagination where people think, oh, this pandemic has shut down the world, therefore, and they're making the connection to China and the CCP. But maybe you disagree about
4: that. No, I understand what you're saying. I, I think I would say a couple of things. First of all, you know, what was Chernobyl, if not an example of how a totalitarian closed dictatorship deals with a a disaster, a crisis, right? Exactly. All right? If you've seen the movie, you you totally get it. The miniseries, uh, that's what they do. They cover it up and lie about it until they're forced to admit it. And there's a direct parallel here to what's going on with the origin story. And again, uh, we don't know how the virus originated. Uh, there are two plausible theories I say that both need to be investigated. I argue that only one has really been investigated to any degree for a number of crazy reasons I know that we're about to get into. But it's hard not to look at the Chernobyl example and say, oh, yeah, that's right. They're never going to own up to it because that's how uh, uh, these dictatorships act in these sort of situations. Of course, it's exactly how the Chinese Communist Party acted the last time they had SARS. Uh, They covered it up for for several months. They lied about it. Uh, They had the science. And what did we do? We poured Tens of millions of dollars into building them a bunch of new labs and giving them the know-how to how to work with risky back coronaviruses.
0: Awesome idea.
4: <laughs> right? I mean, so it seems to me that we should probably check it out. But we'll get to that in a second. On, on your broader issue, I you know, I what I say about the Cold War is that it's it's such an imperfect example because uh, you know, this is the China challenge is so much more complex and in a in a way uh so much more dangerous than the Soviet example because Unlike the Soviet Union, uh, we have deep interconnectedness with China in our economy and in our politics, and that it w- will never change. And unlike the Soviet Union, the Chinese Communist Party is the richest uh, organization in the world. It's a basically operates like a like a cartel, like a mafia organization. I say it's like if the Gambinos own the richest country in the world. That's what it is. Okay, and mm. it's a it's a new kind of problem. And you know that's what they do. They go around to their businesses and to other countries. And they say, oh, you they know, shake them down yeah, nice, nice, nice country guy there would be a shame if something happened to it, you know? Exactly. And that's what they've done with the vaccines and the shots and all of the rest and the masks. You know, in my book, I have a long story about how they blackmailed the Trump administration and basically said, if you want your masks, you have to shut up about the origins of the coronavirus. They In Australia, they said, uh, if you don't shut up, we're going to punish your beef and wine industries, which they did. They decimated their farmers in the middle of a pandemic just for mentioning the coronavirus origins. And this is... Again, sort of what we don't understand about the CCP in our discourse, which is that it's not about uh, China or the Chinese people, the Chinese economy. It's about the party. It's about the party's survival and the party's political agenda, which includes. And
0: the party's expansion, right?
4: And the party's genocide and the party's uh, control and the party's effort to not take over the world, but to shape a global order that makes the world safe for repression and autocracy. In other words, to either neuter or control international organizations like who not to do something active, but to make sure that they never stop the CCP from doing whatever it wants, including covering up a pandemic that broke out on their soil that they continue to break out. Did you see the news this week that there's 300 new Delta variant cases in China in 15 provinces? If you do the math on that, that's about 20 a province. Does that make any sense? They're lying about the outbreak that they're having right now. And then, inviting, uh, you know, the world to follow their model and their example. And, uh, that's, that's a, a problem that we've never had to deal with before. And Chinese influence in our society, in our schools, in our markets, in our tech companies, in our culture, in our politics, and in our media, those are all very challenging and complex, uh, and difficult issues to talk about because they're designed to be. Because what the CCP done has done is they've uh, created a, a massive influence campaign under the rubric of what's known as the United Front. And what that does is it seeds our institutions with billions of dollars through proxies, through mm-hmm. fronts and organizations and people in order to change our, our society from the inside, in order to put their political agenda in our voices coming out of our institutions and our schools and our movies etc and it's so it's in a gray area somewhere between intelligence and propaganda and it's very difficult to talk about much less confront and it you know again we 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 have to make sure that as we're talking about this that we're very careful to separate the chinese communist party from the chinese people uh who are not to blame for the what their uh, government is doing to them and around the world. You know, we wouldn't blame the Italian people for the mafia, would you? So you wouldn't blame (laughs) the Chinese people for the Chinese Communist Party. But at the same time, we have to realize that it was hubristic to think that we're we're going to change China, that China's development is going to be dictated by the Chinese people one way or the other, and that rather than change China, what we have to do is make a decision for ourselves. How do we react to a Chinese Communist Party that is becoming expansionist militarily, brutally repressive at home, and doing things that affect our national security and our public health. And I think that means that we, uh, while we can't change China, we can try to shape their decisions. And I think that's sort of where we are now, although I would have to quickly add that that is not going well because the China issue, as it became uh, very prominent in our discourse, has become hyper-politicized. And I think yes. that kind of gets to the next part of what you were talking about, is the reason that we can't agree on the prognosis, much less the solutions, is because – all of the actors in our political system are now abusing the china issue to advance their own bs in one way or the other and and that is tra- well that was it's as much of a tragedy for the china issue as it was for the pandemic there's no reason masks or vaccines should be politicized there's no reason the china issue should be politicized yet uh as i detail in my book there were a lot of crazy and screwed up things that had to happen for that to get that way and uh some of it is to blame uh some of the blame falls on the Trump administration for conflating the ideas of the virus and some very hateful and racist rhetoric that Trump used. He did that. Asian American hate and uh, violence did increase. That's a stain on our country and our society. But that has nothing to do with the Wuhan labs. That has nothing to do with how the virus broke out. So the fact that the Trump administration conflated those issues – doesn't excuse our us from our responsibility to deconflate them. And you know what I've been hammering on ever since my book came out is that it's crucial that we find the common ground, first of all, inside of our country and then with our allies and partners, because now that we've begun to confront the Chinese Communist Party on a range of these issues, they've actually become more aggressive. It's actually getting worse, according to all the available evidence and data and their appetite grows with the eating and the more powerful they get, the more they tell us to go screw ourselves. And I think that's what you're seeing in the diplomacy, even with the Biden administration. You know, the Biden administration came out with a very reasonable kind of frame. Oh, we're going to cooperate and compete and, and where we can and confront where we have to, blah, 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 blah. And uh, the Chinese government said no. We're not going to do that. Right. You're going to do everything we say or things are going to be bad. Well,
0: and of course they keep doing that because they keep getting away with
4: it. Yes, right.
0: So Josh, just to start us on the path toward a shared reality here, can we go back to what I think of as the start of all of this? So in, in January 2020, and correct me if I'm wrong on the timeline here, but basically by January 2nd of last year, Chinese scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology had identified and mapped the genome of the virus. And then the government forbade those scientists from publishing that mapping. And in the meantime, a different group of Chinese scientists, these at a Shanghai laboratory, they had also mapped the genome like three days later. And they were also forbidden from publishing it. And this was in early January. Is that where the story begins for you?
4: Okay, so uh, the the bits of the timeline that you just went through are correct on their face. But let me even start you back much further because... Uh, the discussion over the January release of the virus was overtaken by events when tons of evidence started coming out that the virus was circulating in Wuhan, perhaps several months earlier. OK, and we're talking about September or October of 2019. And this is exactly what C- former Center for Disease Control and Prevention Director Robert Redfield said in public on CNN when he said that he believed that the virus was the result of gain of function research at the Wuhan lab.
1: I still think the most likely uh, etiology of this pathogen in Wuhan was from a laboratory, um, you know, escaped. Uh, Other people don't believe that. That's fine. Science will eventually figure it out.
4: Everybody ignored him and nobody ever spoke to Robert Redfield again after that for some (laughs) odd reason. But there's a ton of evidence, and a lot of this is in the new House Foreign Affairs Committee minority staff report that just came out, that this may have broken out in September or October, including the fact that the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that same one, took its vi- main virus database offline, had been a public database offline, September 12th, okay? And, uh, you know, dozens of the athletes that traveled to Wuhan in October for the Wuhan Military World Games, it's like the Olympics of the for militaries, got deathly ill and reported covid like symptoms, although we they didn't know what covid was at the time. So they didn't get tested.
0: So you're saying that the virus was already circulating as early as when? I'm
4: saying what we have thought of as the timeline for the first year of the crisis, there's increasing piles of evidence that we need to revise that thinking. And we don't know. But that's what a lot of intelligence people think. That's what Robert Redfield thinks. And the Chinese propaganda, by the way, which I'm not relying on, obviously, is that the Americans brought the virus to Wuhan in October for those same world military games. So they seem to have some data that it was circulating in Wuhan in October. What that means is that they were covering it up for uh, covering it up for 4 months more than we probably than we even thought right. even in the first place, which is again exactly what they did the first time there was SARS. They covered it up for 4 months before they told anybody about it. So so
0: the, those scientists at this Shanghai lab that decide to publish the genome.
4: Yeah, they got erased they got their their lab was closed down the next day for rectification because they went against the party line and then right after that the chinese communist party dictated that all origin related research had to go through the censors and of course then no more no more of it came out for another year so you have the biggest pool of expert scientists on the issue who are totally silent there's another thing to add on top of the pile of their of grievances but here's what i want to get to is that that wuhan institute of virology okay Uh, has been the subject of a lot of intense discussion and speculation. And some of that is based on what the declassified intelligence was. In other words, that they had sick researchers at the lab, that they were doing back coronavirus research at the lab that they didn't tell us about work with mm-hmm. the Chinese military that they didn't tell us about. This is what the Trump administration released on January 15th. I heard you talk to Secretary of State Pompeo about this very issue, right? What you didn't know at the time was that the Biden administration later confirmed all of that stuff, the facts. They didn't say they think it was the lab. They just confirmed that the intelligence shows that this Wuhan Institute of Virology was playing a double game, mm-hmm. that they were taking our collaboration and our know-how and our money and then they built another part of the lab. Now, this is the part of the lab that Tom Cotton was yelled at for calling the biowarfare part of the lab, right, back in the, when nobody was allowed to speak about the lab. And in the book, I talk about that. What I say is basically that at this point in time, January, February 2020, uh, it was a very confusing time in our politics and in our mm-hmm. media. And, you know, th- we weren't getting a lot of good information and things were very volatile. And the, the Trump administration was not very credible. And Tom Cotton... Actually turned out to be technically right. He turned out to right. have said things that in July, twenty, August 2021 are, are revealed to be technically right, which is that they have a biowarfare program dealing with viruses at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. By the way, that's not even necessarily a controversial thing to say because— why wouldn't they? If you had a top virus lab, isn't that where you would put your biowarfare research program? We have one. It's at Fort Detrick. That's why the Chinese are always pointing at Fort Detrick. We have a biowarfare program. They have a biowarfare program. It doesn't mean that we're accusing them of anything. That's what we know, actually. But what the intelligence shows is that there was, this lab was up to a lot of stuff that we didn't know about.
0: And that we were unknowingly
4: funding? Well, I'm going to get to that in a second. And the, okay. Uh, the unreleased intelligence is the stuff that if you read John Radcliffe's op-ed recently that that he's talking about. Who's that, Josh? He is was the Trump administration's final director of national intelligence. He, after, you know, uh Rick Grinnell was acting ODNI for however many weeks, uh Congress they got they, Congress confirmed Radcliffe because uh, you know, to get Rick Rennell out. <laughs> and so he became the ODNI, the head of our 17 intelligence agencies for the end of the Trump administration. And what he wrote is that actually the secret intelligence, the stuff that they didn't release is even more damning, has lots of specifics about the lab. Now I happen to know what some of that is and I'll tell it to you right now. Okay. And this is, I guess, unreleased classified information. I don't have a classification. And so here it goes. Drop it, baby. Let's hear it. What it says is that, you know, the symptoms that these sick researchers had were not your everyday flu symptoms. In other words, they were COVID-specific symptoms necessarily. And these include no smell and what are called ground glass opacities in the lungs. Now, that doesn't medically prove that they had COVID, but that's some pretty specific symptoms. It also says, and this is something that David Asher, who worked in the State Department, has also said, but that I've confirmed independently, that uh, the sick researchers were not the working on. There's lots of stuff in the lab. There were like dozens of labs. The Wuhan Institute of virology is a huge campus with labs mm-hmm. everywhere you look. Dozens of do- these were the guys working at the bat coronavirus lab. Okay. Wow. And so those just those two things alone, again, are what we call pieces of circumstantial evidence. They're not smoking guns. They're not ironclad proof that it came from the lab. They're things to add to the pile of circumstantial evidence that tells me at least we should look at the labs and. Why are all these scientists telling us not to look at the labs? And, you know, how is it that we for a year we were told we weren't even allowed to mention the lab? And now all of a sudden we're allowed to mention it, but only in the sense to say that, oh, well, we're never going to figure it out. So, who, oh, well, let's just go on with our lives and wait for the next pandemic. And what we're having now in our our mainstream media discourse is kind of this crazy, you know, half mea culpa. Right. Mm-hmm. In all, all the major newsrooms in Washington and New York going over all of their old work, sometimes correcting it with letting people know, sometimes not even letting people know, and then writing all of these self-serving pieces about how they were right to get it wrong and now they're right to get it right and the theory changed and all of that nonsense about, you know, ahistoric accountings of why it is that we wasted a year and a half without considering a very likely, although still yet unproven theory that the... Lab with all the coronaviruses in Wuhan might be related to the back coronavirus outbreak. Right.
0: Wuhan. Okay. So, j- so just to root us in like what at least until now, now we know it's maybe months earlier, but at least until now we saw as the beginning of this, which was January 2020. At the time, the theory being pushed throughout the mainstream press was that this was a virus that came from a wet market, that it came from direct contact with animals, I want to understand how that became the mainstream explanation and how—and I remember this very clearly. There's that blogger, Zero Hedge, okay, who you might remember, and he was one of the only people—I don't even know if he's a real person or a group of people—who was saying, actually, guys, look at this map. Look at this place called the, you know, the Wuhan Virology Lab. It's within feet of, you know, and he kind of like laid out the whole theory of the case. And I believe at the time he was banned from places like Twitter. And of course, anyone who touched the idea that it might have come from the lab was smeared as a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, How did that get repressed so effectively? Yeah, Who was doing the repressing? And who was pushing this idea of the wet market? Which if the whole reason that the lab leak theory that that was untouchable, right, was that it was somehow, like, bigoted or conspiratorial, the idea of, like, eating dogs in a wet market seems, like, way more, more problematic on its of face. Of course, so, like yeah. How did this shit right. down in the way that it did?
4: Right. The, the Chinese people eat bat soup theory, I always thought was way more racist than scientists made a mistake in the lab. Yes. But I happen to know exactly how that all got screwed up, because I was writing a book about U.S.-China relations, so I had real sourcing on what was going on inside the relationship. But I was also, you know, working in uh, two different newsrooms at the time and dealing in a, a mainstream media news environment that was all screwed up. Okay, and basically what had happened was that as soon as I have to remember now, January 15th, okay, yes, 2020, the Chinese leadership had come to the White House to announce the phase one trade deal.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States, accompanied by.
4: The Vice Premier of the People's Republic of China. And there was a three-hour, like, love fest in the East Room. Today we
3: take a momentous step, one that has never been taken before with China.
4: Between Donald Trump and the Liu He, the Vice Premier of China.
3: Together we are righting the wrongs of the past and delivering a future of economic justice and security.
4: Who had just negotiated this phase one trade deal, which was like, you know, $50 billion worth of soybeans, which is nice for the soybean salesman, but did not actually fix the U.S.-China trade relationship in any significant way, especially when you're considering that we just spent $6 trillion on a pandemic. But anyway, setting that aside, I want to thank President
3: Xi, who is watching as we speak, and I'll be going over to China in the not too distant future. But I want to thank President Xi, a very, very good friend of mine. We've uh, we're representing different countries.
4: He's representing. But China. President Trump said in this uh, event was that this was a new era of wonderfulness and cooperation in U.S.-China relations.
3: We're delighted to be joined by Vice Premier Liu Ha, a man who also has become a good friend of mine and somebody who's very, very talented and very capable.
4: Whether or not he believed that, that's what he said, and. Uh, the day after the Chinese delegation left, the news started pouring in about the coronavirus. Wow! They didn't mention it. In other words, they didn't say anything. They never mentioned it. It didn't come up. Neither side brought it up. OK. And meanwhile, you had people inside the national security system, including people like Matt Pottinger, but not only Matt Pottinger, who was the deputy national security advisor at the time, a China hand, a former reporter. His wife is a virologist whose brother's an epidemiologist. He was at the nexus of all of these streams of information trying to sound the alarm. And inside the White House, President mm-hmm. Trump, who just thought he just made peace with China, was getting a different message from his economic and political team. OK, and they were saying, don't worry about it. And Josh, who was that? M- Mick Mulvaney, you know, put the first estimate about the coronavirus pandemic budgeted he budgeted it at eight hundred million dollars. That was his first pass at it and then you had guys like peter navarro who considered to be kooks said no it's going to be a several trillion dollars so trump hearing both of those things you know decides to go to his tiebreaker and his tiebreaker was xi jinping and as exclusively reported in chaos under heaven xi jinping in two separate phone calls february 6th and march twenty six, lied to the president of the united states about the coronavirus pandemic what did he say he said it could be, it would go away in warm weather, that it could be treated with herbal medicine, that they had it under control with China. Nothing to worry about. Three days later, after the February 6th call.
3: Now, the virus that we're talking about having to do, you know, a lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat as the heat comes in.
4: Trump is on TV saying many people are saying the, the virus will go away in warm weather. He didn't tell us that many people was the Chinese president who was lying to him.
3: We're in great shape, though. We're... We have 12 cases, 11 cases, and uh, many of them are in good shape now.
4: So- if you read the book, you'll see that you know I'm, there's a lot of things that I think the Trump administration did right. There's a lot of things I think they did wrong, and you know if you're a pro-Trump or, or anti-Trump guy, you'll you will learn something new that you didn't know before. But the point is that uh, you know Donald Trump trusted Xi Jinping over his own people, and that had a devastating effect on his. The garble that was inside of his head and therefore the garble that came out of his mouth and to our policy and our response to the pandemic. It doesn't absolve President Trump of all the other mistakes he made, bleaching your butt, hydrochloric, whatever, you know. <laughs> but the bottom line is that he trusted his friendship with Xi Jinping and Xi Jinping uh, took him. He played him. Well, and that's a pattern with him. He's constantly trusting
0: these strong men over his own people.
4: Exactly. But then when he realized that Xi Jinping had lied to him several months later, he unleashed his national security folks to take retribution, and they took everything that they could think of off the shelf and launched a a war against TikTok and et cetera. So so the personal relationship between Trump and Xi Jinping is really important at several points in the story. But just to get back to the question that you actually asked me, the answer to your question is that immediately after that happened, a group of scientists who – were the primary sources for a group of journalists uh, intentionally, as we now know,
0: American scientists, American,
4: not just all over the world, but Western scientists somewhere in Europe, et cetera. Yeah. Intentionally now we know coordinated an effort to directly call the lab leak theory, a conspiracy theory, and to attack any, anybody who defied that narrative. Now those scientists were very close to Anthony Fauci, but uh, as the emails that w- later were revealed show uh, you know, they did not necessarily believe that that this was a conspiracy theory. In other words, they were communicating amongst themselves that they saw evidence that the virus might have been manipulated or related to modifying research in in, in, the, in a lab. Uh, but they told the public something different. Why did they do that? I'll get to that in a second. Note, just to, on the emails, what they'll say is that, oh, well... Initially, we saw some signs that it might have come from the lab. Now, we did more research and concluded that it was a conspiracy theory. Okay, That's their cover for that timeline. But what I say is if you look at that timeline, it's completely impossible for them to have come to that th- conclusion in, the, in such a shorter time. And besides, as we now know, there's plenty of evidence that by looking at the way the virus looks and the way the virus acts, that it might have been related to the lab in some way. And we can get into that, too. But the reason why they did that mm-hmm. seems to be that they did not want this research at the Wuhan lab uh, to be the, the focus of the investigation because they are connected to that research. In other words, whether I'm not saying that the, the research that Anthony Fauci sponsored in Wuhan sparked the virus. Not, I don't think that's what happened at all. I think what happened was that this group of scientists, the group of virologists, mostly virologists who have been funding all of this research, whether you call it gain-of-function or not, we can get into that too,
3: Mm -hmm.
4: It's very clear that they, over the years, built up these Chinese labs with tons of money and tons of know-how, and that these Chinese labs, especially in Wuhan, then took that knowledge and built another part of the lab. So it doesn't mean that they funded the virus research, as Rand Paul might assume. It simply means that their theory of the case, their entire industry, their entire sort of legacy – which is that the best way to prevent and predict pandemics is to dig up a bunch of dangerous vi- viruses and play around with them in labs, no matter what you call it, uh, mm-hmm. would necessarily have to be called into question if that research was connected to the outbreak. In other words, their entire business, their entire $200 million worth of research mm-hmm. would necessarily have to be stopped. If it's connected to this research, right? they have a direct conflict of interest. Anthony Fauci has a direct conflict of interest. Peter Daszak, the head of the EcoHealth Alliance, has a direct conflict of interest. And that's okay to have a direct conflict of interest. But it's not okay for them to tell the rest of the world that you've come to a conclusion that serves that conflict of interest and then disguise the way that you came to that conclusion. And as it turns out, that conclusion was totally disputed and remains disputed and continues to be disputed. Mm-hmm.
0: After the break, more with Josh Rogan and just why the media and many progressive politicians wound up doing the bidding of the CCP. Stay with us. There's so much more to Jewish history than persecution. I know it's sometimes hard to believe that when you talk to Jews, but trust me, there is. And in Jewish History Unpacked, the newest podcast from the people who brought you unpacking Israeli history, you'll find out about some of the craziest, most amazing, but lesser known stories that fill the Jewish history books. Given that the Jewish people's history goes back for millennia and spans continents and epochs, there are so many stories you just won't want to miss. You'll end up asking yourself questions that you never thought of, like, was Napoleon actually a hero for the Jews? And why were there so many suicide packs in the first century? Hosts Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab will fill you in on what happened, how it happened, and why all of these ancient stories still matter. You can find Jewish History Unpacked wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, so clear to me why scientists would do what they did. But then you have the media who basically is just completely going along with that narrative. That's not because, you know, they're paid up by the Chinese Communist Party. That's because I imagine you would say, you know, journalists are beholden to their sources. Journalists also might not be the most enterprising of people at all times. And they were just kind of like listening to their sources. Is that right?
4: Right. I think, yes, I think that's part of it. But but it's kind
0: of like you sort of have to repress common sense to not. We'll, well, look at the lab leak theory, in my view.
4: Here's the thing, Barry, and and you know, I've worked, I know you've worked in a lot of newsrooms. I've worked in eight different major newsrooms over the course of 17 years, okay? So I think I, I'm not a media critic, but I think I have a good idea of how these newsrooms work. And we also know from what these journalists have written to cover up their tracks, how what they think about their thought process. And best I can tell is that, yes, there was a lot of Source bias, in, in, in other words, science journalists trusted the scientists and, mm-hmm. you know, national security journalists who cover the intelligence community trusted the intelligence community, which had its own conflict of interest and its own bias on the lab leak, by the way, which mm-hmm. is really important to get to if we talk about the intelligence review that's going on right now. And who knows? Maybe I have my own source bias as well. <laughs> I'm sure I do. But then. I, I The only reason I think I got it more right than others was because I did more reporting because I was writing the book because I was talking to dozens and dozens and dozens of people uh, who were directly involved. So I was able to sort of pick up earlier than most that, oh, well, there were actually a lot of people inside the system who wanted to take a look into these labs who not only through Occam's Razor but through their own collection and research had realized that there are a lot of connections there, that the research that they were doing made sense in the timeline of what was going on with the virus, that the, the cover-up was directed to the labs, that they weren't covering up the markets. By the way, the Chinese CDC disavowed the market theory in May. They found that the first cases had nothing to do with the market, So, but everybody in Washington just sort of ignored that. But I think it's a combination of source bias, confirmation bias, right? Once they wrote that it was a conspiracy theory, they couldn't admit that they were wrong because mm-hmm. uh, the origin – issue got caught up in our media wars and, you know, I, yes. I'm, no, no shade on Zero Hedge, but he's kind of like I, I, that's kind of like the rooster taking credit for the sunrise, okay? There's a lot <laughs> there, was, there was a lot going on, okay? And then, like... No, some, it just stuck out to me because he no, was... No, I know, every, you know everyone will notice it at a different place. I'm just telling you, I was there and there were a lot of people right. on the right, right and in the MAGA media who were like wait a second, the NIH is funding the Wuhan lab we should probably check that out, and by the way, the lab theory is not so crazy after all, but because the mainstream media doesn't want to get dunked on they can never admit that they were wrong and don't get me wrong i think that you know we should be held to a higher standard because we are claiming a, or these newsrooms are claiming a, a, a some sort of better credibility than a zero hedge but sometimes zero hedge is right and the new york times is wrong that's just the law of averages if anything else okay so you know i never there's some a lot of anti-trump bias because once Trump, this kind of is where i got personally involved in the origin story because what happened in april was after months of getting blackmailed for our masks right the pompeo people would say to me they would say you know we we really they would say quietly we think it's the lab but we can't say anything because uh we're not going to get our masks we really need those masks you know and people were dying so they they had to succumb to the ccp's blackmail but in april i did something that changed the debate actually i i released an article with diplomatic cables uh that i had dug up that were from 2018 that expressed concerns about the safety of the lab, not just about the lab safety, but about their research on modifying back coronaviruses, okay?
0: And the, I, from what I remember, the cables, like it was people warning about the safety of the lab, like back in 2018.
4: That's right. So what happened was, because the Wuhan Institute of Virology published some of this research, they didn't publish all of it, they published some of it, which is another thing that, the best friend scientists of the Wuhan lab, like Peter Daszak, will always say, oh, well, it couldn't have been the lab because we know what they were doing. But even Anthony Fauci will now now admit, well, he didn't actually know what was going on on the other side of that lab, even if they knew what was going on in their own research project, which they won't reveal the details of, which they won't hand over the records of to members of Congress who are requesting them, right? So, but uh, at, in 2018, a bunch of U.S. diplomats in Beijing Saw some of this published research, namely the research that about modifying bat coronaviruses to make them more uh, transmissible to humans, and they were like, "Wait a second, we should probably go check out this lab." And they sent three teams of diplomats down to these labs, and the diplomats heard from the Chinese researchers that their their safety procedures were all screwed up and they didn't have the right stuff, and then and they reported back to Washington, "Hey, uh, we're concerned about the bat coronavirus research at these labs." And we actually think we should give them more support because we should make sure that these are this risky research is being done in labs that are safe. Mm -hmm. And nobody in Washington ever responded. Nobody ever got back to them. And they were later locked out of the labs. Now, that doesn't speak to the origin per se, because, of course, those cables were written two years prior to the outbreak. But it's the same research, a, ACE2 receptor to the spike protein on a a mouse transfer. I mean, it's almost the exact same thing. It's not the same virus, but it's the same uh, you know, ballpark at least, at the very least. And what these diplomats told me when I was researching the book, they were like, we thought there was going to be another SARS-like outbreak at this lab. If we had known it was going to be the worst pandemic in human history, we would have made a bigger stink about it. OK, so there were all that add that to the pile of research, the pile of circumstantial evidence not smoking gun, just circumstantial evidence, uh, that we should probably take a look into these labs. Meanwhile, these scientists are attacking everybody who uh, talks about the labs. So what I did was I published these cables, and uh, and I asked Pompeo if he would just uh, – once I found out about them, I asked Pompeo if I could just have them. I'm like, hey, if you really think this is a lab, why don't you just give me these cables? And he said no. He He refused. And so then I found them anyway, and I published them, and then the next day he turned on the dime and said, we, pro- we probably think it was the labs. <laughs> and he decided that since the cat was out of the bag that he would endorse the lab leak theory. And then they asked Trump a couple of days later, do you think it was labs? And he says, well, I can't tell you the details, but yeah, it was probably the labs. And immediately the media was like, it can't be the labs because Trump just said it was the labs, and he won't give us any evidence. So you had the science journalists trusting Fauci and Dashak, which is really Crazy when you think about it, because if you read Don McNeil's New York Times, the former New York Times science journalist, uh, mm-hmm. his "Maya culpa, where he writes, well, maybe the lab leak theory isn't so crazy after all. Well, he actually credits my reporting as helping him get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, inside of that piece, he t- does something that's completely unself-aware, which is he says, well— you know, the reason I didn't think it was because my best sources, Fauci and Daszak, yes. said it it couldn't be so, and they've never lied to me before, so why would they start now, right? So the, they were captured. These science journalists got took. They got snookered, yes. okay? And they can't admit it. Now, the national security journalists are split because some— were facing some of the sources that were saying the lab leak theory is not crazy, and some were facing the intelligence sources, and the intelligence people were in their own war with the Trump people over many things, over Russia, over all this stuff. So there were people inside the IC intelligence community bureaucracy that leaked against the lab leak theory in order to try to reset the narrative. Things got crazy for a while there at the end of the Trump administration, and a lot of people were coloring outside the lines, including a lot of intelligence and law enforcement officials. It just happened, okay? Mm Mm-hmm. So the editors in all these newsrooms looking at that and, okay, we've got Trump and Pompeo on one hand, Anthony Fauci on the other hand, we're going to go with Fauci and Dash. Of course. Seemed like a reasonable thing to do. Now, again, I didn't do that because I had done more reporting. I wasn't just depending on Trump and Pompeo. I had a lot of other sources. But now, a year and a half later, or at least a year later, now that there's a ton of more evidence, now that the Biden, President Biden himself has said that one of our intelligence agencies thinks it probably was the lab, and he 's doing an intelligence review and it 's not a crazy thing to say none of these media organizations can admit where they got it wrong, so they're all sort of saying, "Well, the theory became more credible. No, the theory didn 't change mm-hmm. you know they just realized that they didn 't do their jobs, and you know the media journalists are probably the worst of all of them because they are in charge of policing us the regular journalists, and they don 't even understand what the hell happened. And so I don't think we can ever untangle it in our public discourses, except for this podcast right now, Barry. This is the this is the one, <laughs> if people want to really know the ground truth of how we got into this mess, they're going to have to listen to this episode of your show uh, or be lost.
0: Unfortunately, in an age of a totally broken media system, people actually do need to listen to hours of podcasts in order to get the truth about things like this. Well,
4: because it's complicated and it takes hours to get through it correctly and that's why I think No, we'll but, the reason, this, ta- but you know,
0: the reason it but the reason it takes hours to get through it correctly is because we have to unravel all of the layers of genuine misinformation. Right. While they go around accusing everyone else of misinformation to just sort of like let's clear away all of the things that were swirling around this that are untrue. Let's explain why they were swirling. Oh, it's because of loyalty to the CCP or covering their own ass or whatever. And that just throat clearing just takes a long time. But it's really important. Right. Yeah. From my perspective, as someone who, you know, would never have understood what a spike protein was or mRNA or, or any of these things, I am the furthest thing from a science person. The basic refrain that we kept hearing from public health experts and scientists who were on the news every single night, right, was trust the data. Trust the data. But the data was coming from China, And as a sort of civilian observer who's not an expert in science and not an expert in China, but who basically sees, I think, what any normal person will see, which is that it's China. It's like the Soviet Union. It does not tell the truth about itself. That basic refrain of just believe them, well, the reaction that I had, and I think a lot of normal Americans had, was, wait, why would we ever believe them? Right. And that, to me, was like the kind of Core that was the beginning of my—I don't radicalizations maybe be the wrong word for this. Just but my skepticism of the entire story.
4: Right, it's really important that we, you get to this point because this is where all roads lead uh, when we talk about the U.S.-China relationship. Eventually, they lead back to the fact that uh, their system is different than ours. That the CCP is doesn't operate the way that we wanted to, or the way that Anthony Fauci thought it did, and this is sort of like gets at your at the Rand Paul Anthony Fauci debate too, because, you know, basically what what Fauci and Dashak and all of the friends of the Wuhan lab will say over and over again. And if you get them into a scientific discussion about the definition of gain of function research, which is a red herring by the way, or into like the details of Well, okay, so
0: wait if if we're gonna get to that, let's let's maybe get to let's do you want to do that part?
4: Let me do it right after I finish this sentence. Okay, great. What I'm trying to say is that In the grand strategic competition with China, and that's not, I think, a U.S. competition. I think that's a competition between free and open societies, between countries that believe in enlightenment ideals more or less, versus China as the global power that sits ready and able to challenge the system that we've built and and, and intends to do so. As part of that global struggle— a scientific collaboration was held up as the one place where we could cooperate. It was held up as the one place where if you can't work together on stopping a pandemic, mm-hmm. what could you possibly work together on? And what we've now learned is that we can't work together on stopping the pandemic because they're not interested in that. OK, and that our scientific collaboration has to be totally rethought because viruses are a dual use technology because science mm-hmm. has a national security implication. And that's the thing that Anthony Fetch will never admit if you saw him on CNN. Jake Tapper hits them very clearly. So as a matter of policy going forward, given that the Chinese government won't allow any real investigation, do you still think the U.S. government should collaborate with labs like Wuhan, especially on research that experts consider risky? Okay, let's assume that these were just nice Chinese scientists trying to do good science, which, of course, I'm sure they were. Now that you realize that they don't have the power to speak out without getting jailed, that they can't give us the data, that the whole Mm -hmm. thing's controlled by a, a repressive Chinese government, do you still think it's a good idea? And Fauci said yes.
1: So, I I mean, if your question, Jake, is looking forward, are going to be very careful about the research that we do? Well, we have always been very careful. And looking forward, we will continue
4: to be very careful in what we do. He still said that we should continue to pour our money and know-how into these Chinese labs because that's where the virus, that's where the bats are. That's what he said.
1: I think doing research in the context of where these things happen is very important. If we were starting to look for bats in Secaucus, New Jersey, or Fairfax County, Virginia, it wouldn't contribute very much to yeah. our understanding of where SARS-CoV-1 originated. You it can't originated
0: get a bat somewhere else? I don't understand. Well,
4: or why not just get the bat and take it out of China? Or if exactly. That's what it comes to. But, but it's worse than that, because if you read his last interview in The New York Times, what he proposed was a drastic multi-billion dollar expansion of this project, okay? He wants to build 20 times the capacity to dig up dangerous viruses and play around with them in labs, including labs in China. That's his solution to the pandemic. He wants to sextuple the budget for the research into this very risky research, okay? And that seems like... A crazy thing to do before we figure it out if that's the research that sparked the pandemic. Again, I'm not saying it did. I'm saying we should probably figure it out before we give Anthony Fauci several billion more dollars, which is his his explicit ask in the New York Times. That's what he wants to do. And he doesn't even seem to realize that when you do business in China that the party controls it all and that they will weaponize it against you if they can in one way or the other. And that is a, a, like just a, a, a problem that's just like too big for our discourse right now. People can't wrap their heads around it. Wait, we're going to respond to the pandemic by increasing the risk exponentially and paying the Chinese for the privilege after they just told us to, to screw ourselves when we asked to get into the lab next to the coronavirus outbreak. They won't even let us into the lab. And Fauci said, oh, let's give them some more money.
0: So, so what is the most generous read of Fauci's position? Why would he possibly be recommending that? You know, in in the aftermath of this,
4: if I were to give him every benefit of every doubt, I would say that Anthony Fauci believes in his heart of hearts that the best way to prevent a pandemic is by uh, digging up all the viruses in the world and uh, playing around with them, making them more dangerous so we can get a head start on therapeutics and vaccines. And, of course, that's what the project was meant to do It was called the predict and prevent program. Now, of course, it didn't work. It didn't prevent or predict or predict prevent the pandemic, but what he would say is that, well, we didn't do enough of it, and if we just you know, mm-hmm. quadruple it, then we're going to predict and prevent uh, maybe an influenza pandemic, or something like that, or a bird flu pandemic, which are, like, the two next examples, that which are which would each be, like, much, much worse than this one, by the way. And uh, I think that he may, in his heart of hearts, he may, I'm sure he believes that, okay? I'm sure he doesn't, he's not trying to start pandemics, I'm sure he's trying to prevent pandemics. There is another school of thought out there, right? The other school of thought among scientists, uh, is that, no, rather than dig up dangerous viruses and play around with them in dangerous labs, uh, we should put all of that money, all of those billions, into surveillance, monitoring, and pre-positioning of uh, reaction equipment in the places where the outbreaks are likely. In other words, where the bats are, okay? And if we just mm-hmm. stamp out outbreaks when they pop up, you would save them a lot more lives than trying to dig up a lot of viruses. Now, the problem, of course, is that because Fauci is the head of the Agency that distributes all of the money, ninety percent of the money for virus research. He, he makes the rules, and so if you're fu- if you want to be funded in that industry, you probably have to go around along with the program. And that's another reason why all of these scientists and I used to get contacted by scientists all the time who say, "I would love to speak up against this gain of function research, uh, but I can't do that. I'm going to lose my grants. I'm going to lose my career." All right, and that's uh, the inner inner politics of the scientific community that have now been uh, that have now emerged somewhat when we see more and more of these scientists. Uh, say, no, wait a second, this was really dangerous research that we probably shouldn't have been doing in risky Chinese labs, even if the outbreak didn't come from the lab, even if the lab leak theory is not true, we've identified a risk now. Yes. But clearly, right? We now know that these labs have zero accountability and zero transparency in a crisis. So how can we fund them? How is that? How does that make any sense? That's what Anthony Fauci wants to do. That's why I think uh, it's actually uh, really kind of misleading and dangerous when people like Peter Dashek say, It's impossible that it came from the lab because, of course, he doesn't know that and he has a clear conflict of interest. And that's that's the narrative that helped us waste a year and a half already into this investigation, uh, which is tragic, which has caused untold current and future suffering. So and Josh,
0: what is your opinion of the polarizing man, Anthony Fauci?
4: You know, I think there are a lot of bad faith attacks on Anthony Fauci, and I think there are some good faith attacks on Anthony Fauci. And I think that, uh, you know, we have to separate the two. Uh, you know, I he became super politicized in the context of Max masks and other decisions last year. Uh, this is a different thing. You know, people can be complicated. And, you know, if uh, I'm not accusing Anthony Fauci of breaking the law, what I'm saying is that he had a fiduciary responsibility to oversee the help and assistance that the U.S. government was funding in these Wuhan labs, and he didn't do that. As we now know, he admitted that he didn't know what was going on in these labs. He should have. And what that tells me is that we have to stop uh, uh, entrusting the oversight of risky research to the people who benefit and sponsor that research. That if we, if this if science and and viruses are considered a national security sensitive technology by our adversaries, then we have to act accordingly and consider them. A national security uh, uh, sensitive ourselves, and then we have to uh, take the oversight out of the scientific community and put it into our policy and uh, national security community where it belongs.
0: Josh, that takes us kind of perfectly into. The recent showdown between Anthony Fauci and Rand Paul.
2: Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th, where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan?
1: Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. This paper that you are referring to was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain as not being gain of function. So what saying, was? Let me take, finish. You
2: take an animal virus and you increase yeah, its transmissibility yeah, to humans. Right. You're saying that's not gain of function? Yeah,
1: that is correct. And, and Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially.
0: And I think it was you that wrote a column that was like, sorry, guys, Rand Paul was right.
2: Right. You do not know what you are talking about. They took animal viruses that only occur in animals and they increased their transmissibility to humans. How you can say that is not gain of function? It is not. It's a dance and you're dancing around this because you're trying to obscure responsibility. for.
0: Tell us about the nature of that exchange, which speaks to this phrase that I think a lot of people are sick of hearing and don't really know what it means, which is this question of gain of function research. That was the subject that, the senator, and Anthony Fauci were discussing. Explain to us what gain-of-function research is, why it matters, and why Rand Paul was right in that exchange.
4: Sure. So, you know, anytime you're working with viruses and you're uh, increasing their transmissibility or their virulence, in other words, making them more dangerous, you're adding a function. So it's gaining a function. Now, that's not the only type of gain-of-function research. You could get add a function that makes the virus... You know, smell like strawberries or something like that. That would also be adding gain of function, but a benign form of it. And I just made that up. But the gain of function research that we're talking about here is where you take a virus and you make it more infectious to humans. Again, to Mm
2: -hmm.
4: predict how it would evolve and just to speed up that evolution. The way that they do it in Wuhan and in North Carolina and other places is that they take some mice they give them human lung cells, right? So their lungs act like human lungs. Mm-hmm. And then they run the virus through a virus that you found in nature, run it through these mice lungs, these human lungs in, the, in these mice, a few dozen times and see what happens. And then if it gets more dangerous, they take that one and they're like, oh, good, good, good. Let's take that one and make run it through a bunch more mice and see what happens until they get a super virus. And then they're like, OK, let's try to figure out how to solve this super virus. That's the benign and simplest way to describe mm-hmm. gain-of-function research. Now, we know that in that definition, in that common sense definition that I just explained to you, that's what was going on in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Right. And the reason that Anthony Fauci won his scientific debate in the eyes of the mainstream media with Rand Paul in their five-minute screaming match was because he's not using that definition. Anthony Fauci is referring to a definition – that the NIH uses, which is a very specific and narrow version of that definition, that he helped to write. What we're alleging is that gain-of-function
2: research was going on in that lab, and NIH funded it. That is you can't not get away from it. It meets your definition, and you are obfuscating the truth. Everybody, I'm not obfuscating you're, the truth. You
0: are the time one. Time is re- expired, but I. Will it just wait. looked like word games.
4: It looked yes, like it's word a games. semantic red herring. Exactly. That you're exactly right. It makes no difference because the essence of what Rand Paul was asking him was. Were they doing the research that makes the virus more dangerous, and did we help them? Okay, And the answer to both of those questions is yes. Now, Anthony Fauci, because he's a scientist and he's prepared, right? he's smart, he knows what he's doing, he can always retreat to his lawyerly defense of the definition that he knows better than Rand Paul, that he knows better than you and me. Now, the problem, of course, with that is that when the Obama administration paused gain-of-function research – They required this definition to be written in order to turn it back on. And Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins at the NIH were instrumental in writing that definition. And the reason that they wrote it was because they built an oversight mechanism to oversee risky research. And they wrote the definition to make sure that None of the research that they were doing would fit the oversight mechanism. They, they never used it. The, they used it like twice in, in five years and not for any of this research. In other words, he built a huge loophole into his own definition. And then he drove the truck through his own loophole and bragged about it. <laughs> and if you just think about that, you know what I mean? Yes. And, and because he sort of knows that in any screaming match, and Rand Paul knows this too, they both win. Rand Paul gets his headlines. Right. Anthony right. Fauci is, uh, gets the defense of the democratic party leadership and they both get something out of it. And, you know, it, that's why, he, and so, you know, what is Rand Paul doing? He's showboating. He's, he, there's no way Merrick Garland is going to prosecute Anthony Fauci for perjury. He's just, he's playing politics. There's, po- there's gambling in the casino. Okay. So they're all, they're both playing politics, but the reason that Fauci keeps getting away with it is because, uh, he's able to evade the essence of the question, which is, Hey, How come all of that research that you're not just him, by the way, we're talking about the Defense Department, the Homeland Security Department, Mm -hmm. USAID, all of this help and know-how that you're pumping into these Chinese labs. And you have no idea what's going on in these labs. And then you're telling us not to look at the labs, that's not okay. And by the way, we're going to need to see your books and we're going to need to see the records. And why won't you give us the records? And who do you who are you, Anthony Fauci, to tell the American people that we can fund this research? you won't even hand the record over to Congress. And how is that okay? And keep in mind that the origin question is not a scientific question. And there are there's no scientific consensus. And we know this because Robert Redfield, who was the head of the CDC, a virologist, and has seen all the intelligence, completely disagrees with Anthony Fauci on all of these things, over whether it was modified, whether it came from the lab, all of it. So anyone who tells you that there's a scientific consensus is lying to you. And anyone who tells you that, you know, one theory is more likely than the other theory is putting their finger on the scale, because we just don't know. And, you know, so, so what I'm saying is that, uh, you know— Uh, There's a reason that Anthony Fauci and Peter Daszak are not handing over these documents, because there's there's a lot more to be learned about how we helped all of these labs develop the ability, the capability to do things that could threaten the whole world with a pandemic. We're still piecing together the evidence. So we're looking at the animal evidence. Peter
0: Daszak is a name that keeps coming up. You know, what was sold in the
1: market? Where did it come from? Um, What types of, of animals are they, the ones that could carry Coronavirus.
0: I would love for you to explain how he is implicated in all of this, who he is, and what did he do.
2: Do you think it's possible this virus was engineered within that
4: lab and leaked? There's no evidence of that at all. Peter Daschek is uh, the head of a nonprofit organization called the EcoHealth Alliance, and their job is to advance the cause of preventing pandemics, amongst other public health issues. And the the way that they do that is by partnering with other organizations and labs all over the world. It's a massive operation. And their main funder is the U.S. government, but they also get money from the Chinese government and lots of other places. Mm -hmm. Now, Peter Daszak is not a virologist. He's a zoologist, actually. But what he's been doing over the last 15 years is going around to bat caves and digging up bats with lots of other scientists, including the scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They're close collaborators, close partners. And in fact... He was in charge of some of the money, but not all of the money that flowed from U.S. taxpayers to these Wuhan labs. And, you know, people focus on Fauci too much. The biggest chunk of it came from the Defense Department, from the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, in fact. And if you just think about that, well, what are they paying Peter Dashak to do They're, to monitor the threats that are coming out of these mm-hmm. Wuhan labs? And DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, paid EcoHealth Alliance a couple million dollars to fight disinformation about the, the pandemic. Think about that for a second. <laughs> And what he did instead of fighting disinformation was that he spread disinformation, okay? Again, I'm an opinion columnist, so that's my opinion, but I think the evidence is indisputable. And when you look at his role in organizing that first letter in The Lancet, which called the lab leak theory conspiracy theory, in his subsequent interviews, several things that he said that weren't true, and then his continued refusal to hand over the details of his work with these labs to Congress, I think you see a pattern of misleading and obfuscating what was going on in these Wuhan labs to the extent that he is aware of it. And again, because his career is tied to the labs, because his work, his research is tied to the labs, and because he's currently seeking billions of dollars more to do more of this work. And that is all threatened by the distinct possibility that the labs were related to the virus. Now, again, I think that he's become sort of a target of the right-wing and mega-media. I think some of those attacks are unfair. I think a lot of them are fair, okay? And nobody in this story is 100% good or 100% bad. Nobody, none of our institutions, and, and it's becoming clear to me, Barry, the more we get through this conversation, none of our institutions perform well in this pandemic. Not our right. media, not our government, not our industry. You know, the first responders, they're the only ones who stepped up. The first responders are, are the only true heroes of the pandemic. Uh, the rest of our public institutions, Congress, totally failed. Uh, c- continued to fail. Both parties performed horribly, horribly Throughout this, and especially on this issue, because why is it that the Democrat and by the way, you know, as I've said before, full disclosure, I'm a I'm a ag- agnostic Democrat. Right. I'm like I'm kind of like a an atheist Jew. Like I I, <laughs> I, I I'm, I'm a registered Democrat. I'm culturally Democratic, like I'm culturally Jewish, but like I'm, I'm basically an indep- try to be an independent thinker. Right. Uh, but that's a long way to say that. I, I think it's a, a tragedy. that The Democratic Party is silent on the origin issue. Why are they silent? Well, because the progressive left bought into the conflation of the lab leak theory with racism, uh, and and that's yeah. a hard bell to unring, and because the Biden team has no political incentive to really find out. They have a national security and public health incentive preventing the next pandemic. By the way, that's why we have to find out to change policy and politics so that we don't have to do this every two years, okay? But politically, it's all downside. It, it screws with the U.S.-China relationship. It screws with their agenda, climate change, whatever, And it also screws with, uh, you know, they would have to throw their progressive left under the bus in order to endorse the lab leak theory. And, you know, why would they want to do that unless they absolutely have to? So they're doing the bare minimum, and Democrats are doing exactly nothing. So it's left to these Republican congressmen who are, I think, valiantly pushing it through, although some like Rand Paul go too far.
0: Well, it's interesting to me, Josh, I always think of you as a news side reporter because that's what you were for a really long time. For
4: the first— 15 years.
0: Exactly. And now you're an opinion columnist. I'm, I guess I'm wondering if you can be a little self-reflective here without putting you too much on the spot. Do you think you would be able to report the things you're reporting and say the things that you say with the freedom with which you're saying it if you were on the news side of a paper like the Washington Post where you're currently on the opinion side? Would you have been able well, to no, pursue but- your curiosity in this way?
4: Well, I'd be able to pursue my curiosity, but in a different way. You know, I, I, I spent my first 14 out of 18 years As a journalist doing, quote unquote, straight news reporting, but, you know, Hunter S. Thompson says the only true objective news is box scores and race tabulations, you know, (laughs) and so and stock market tickers. Right. So, you know, he calls it a, a pompous contradiction in terms. Right. But I when I was a straight news reporter, I made a very determined effort to understand my own biases and then to take them out of my articles and that's where Mm -hmm. the integrity lied and did uh, understanding what your intellectual prism was this is how i thought about it understanding your intellectual prism and then accounting for it in your reporting as to be unbiased and fair now that's an ideal that you can never reach but the integrity is in trying to do that not all uh news reporters do that but most of them do now as an opinion columnist my my role is to tell my readers my biases to wear them on my sleeve and then to Honestly, engage arguments against them. In other words, opinions are not biases. Now I can just be honest about what I think, and for me, that of course is a much different uh, journalistic muscle, and it's a different process, and I like it more because I get to uh, you know be myself more. But mm-hmm. I think there's an important role in journalism for both of those, and I think both of those can be corrupted in different ways. And so, you know, what I try to do is again with with anyone, with a podcast or in my column or on Twitter, just to be honest with my readers and even with my opponents and even with people who I disagree with. And in our age where there's so little trust in what goes on behind the curtain of newsrooms, right? Because most mm-hmm. people don't, it's not a conspiracy. You're right, Barry, it's mostly incompetence, right? It's like, like if you had to be honest about it, it's not a conspiracy.
0: It's it's a little bit of incompetence. It's laziness. It's relying on the sources that are convenient to you and that you right. socialize with. Right. But then I think the the true deeper thing is and I don't know how to describe this without sounding a little crazy. It's a it's like there's 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 just a there's an incredibly powerful element of just hive mind at work. Sure. Groupthink at work. And if all of your friends and all of your colleagues are going in one direction, and that's the thing that's also being reflected back to you exponentially in places like Twitter. And it's saying to you, Anthony Fauci is a prophet, Anthony Fauci is a god. Rand Paul is a crazy, kooky nut, which I understand why people would say that. Sure. It's going to become extremely difficult for you to say anything other than that, or frankly, maybe even to think anything differently if that's your entire echo chamber. That's what I think people who are not close to the media business can't seem to understand. Like, I talk to a lot of people on the right who think that it's like, you know, this conspiracy from on high. And it's really just much more mundane than that. It's really about just like in any culture, who are the people you're surrounding with? Who are the heroes of that culture? Who are the villains? And, you know, do you kind of swim along those waters,
4: right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Now I would you go one step further to say that, you know, these corporatized newsrooms are designed that way. In other words, the incentives are for narrative setting. And that's how you get sort of clicks and subscriptions and loyal readers and, you know, I that's I think again that's a lot something a lot of these newsrooms are aware of frankly and try to mitigate imperfectly at times and you know I also think that's why the media is changing and you know I worked in major newsrooms for seventeen years but you know there's a lot of other platforms out there now and a lot of other choices and I think that it's good you know what I mean I don't I don't look at the diverse media environment and say oh my god they're eating our lunch I say let a thousand flowers bloom you know because mm-hmm. I'm able to reach people who don't read the Washington post or watch CNN by being on your podcast. And those are people who I want to hear what I have to say and who I think need to be part of the conversation about the China challenge, which is how we started. And that can't be, you know, sort of workshopped and sort of decided in an editorial meeting. It just, it's not going to work that way. And I think the newsrooms actually, what they, what they bring to bear is this reporting and digging ability. In other words, You know, the the commentators would have nothing to commentate on if the these reporters weren't digging up all these facts and holding government accountable. And on a good day, that happens a lot. Right. A lot of skilled journalists doing the professional work of journalism. uh, I value that. I want to be in that uh, in that game. And I that's why I do a ton of reporting in my columns, because I think that's important. My boss, Fred Hyatt, likes to say uh, we like to figure out what's going on before we figure out what we think about it. You know, right. Exactly. But I'm not scared by the idea that, okay, well, we're going to have different types of platforms, different types of organizations, different formats for disseminating journalism, different styles, different levels of opinion or yellow, even yellow. These are all things that I think are steeped in the American tradition, frankly, you know, and we just because there's not a lot of transparency and there's a lot of sort of infighting. Uh, We lose sight of the goal, which is to have sort of a robust marketplace of ideas. And, you know, I also do think that because our politics got so broken during the Trump era and actually newsrooms kind of lost their way because dealing with the Trump team was a mess it was a disaster okay and it was some things it was hard to check things and it was hard to know you know they lied all the time it was just different you know they, mm-hmm. they sort of broke a lot of what i call the functional dysfunction of washington where something works <laughs> the way it was supposed to work but everyone muddles along yeah and yeah. and trump smashed that he flipped over the chessboard right and you could say that that needed to be done but he didn't set it back up again and this left a lot of newsrooms in a weird position and i think they're sorting through it at now. So I'm I'm a I'm a booster of the mainstream media. I'm not ashamed, I'm a proud to be part of the mainstream media. At the same time, I'm I have I don't mind at all pointing out its flaws because I think that's the only way uh it can improve and adapt to the times, which in many cases it's failing to do.
0: Thanks for listening and stay tuned. Later this week we'll be releasing the second part of my conversation with Josh Rogan.
4: When one tweet can get the NBA punished to the tune of $400 million, well, a lot of people can instantly realize that we've got a problem here. Exactly. And the problem is that the Chinese Communist Party is now exporting its social credit system and its censorship to us, telling us what we can think and what we can say and what we can tweet. Yes. To tell us that we don't have our rights even inside of our own country. That's the first line of battle. That's the first thing we can't tolerate.
0: For more, visit honestlypod.com.